Hi, and welcome. You are listening to Speeching It Real, a podcast where I interview speech language pathologists who are just starting out in the field, from undergrads who are interested in becoming SLPs to those who are currently practicing clinicians. We will cover it all, including current graduate students, people in clinical fellowship years, and everything in between. Here you can learn all about what it's like to get started, how paths change, and connect with people that are going through the same things you are. I'm your host, Christy Ubieta, and I'm currently a first-year grad student at CU Boulder. Quick disclaimer, all statements and opinions on this podcast are not reflections of the organizations or schools associated with the speakers. Each person's words reflect their own opinions, including my own. Hey guys, today we are joined by Andrea. She is a pediatric speech pathologist and the Colorado Speech Language and Hearing Association president. She is passionate about supporting her clients and future clinicians and loves incorporating music into her daily life and with her clients. I am so excited that she's coming on today, so let's just jump right into it. Hi everyone and welcome back to Speeching It Real. I have this super amazing president of Kasha, which is Colorado, not California. Um, and her name is Andrea. She's great. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Christy. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. Are you excited to come on and talk about this with everyone? I am so excited. I'm a little nervous, but so excited. Great. So tell all of our listeners a little bit about yourself. So I am actually an army brat. Both of my parents were in the military. Um, my mom was a helicopter pilot. My dad was in the field artillery. And we grew up moving around quite a bit during my young childhood. So I was born in Germany. I've lived in New York, Virginia, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, but I truly do call New York my home just because we lived there for so long in the Hudson Valley. I'm also the oldest of eight kids. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Um, so I feel like that's always a fun fact that kind of shocks people too. They think big family, four kids or so, but no. I'm the oldest of eight. I come from a very musical family. So we love watching musicals. We love listening to music. A lot of us play different instruments and sing. So music is very much embedded in our family as well. I currently live in Colorado Springs. I work at a private practice downtown. I work with pediatric clients primarily. What else do you want to know? So I want to know how you got into this field, but first, just because you said about music, <laughs> do you integrate music into your therapy? Very much so. Um, I often will get a text or a note from one of my other fellow clinicians in the clinic saying, I heard you singing again, or if I hear Old MacDonald one more time. <laughs> so I'm constantly singing when we're walking up and down the stairs with the kids. And I just find that especially the pediatric population really responds well to music. Mm -hmm. And if you can add music to anything, it just fires those other synapses in the brain that just makes it that much more interesting for them to learn. Yeah. What are some of the reasons that you think or that you've read about why music is great for kids? You know, I think it's just because it's different. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when kids come to therapy, they're just expecting to sit at a table and do elicitation after elicitation, or it's this very contrived setting. But it's something different and it can be fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not many people out there who don't appreciate music in some form or another. So if you can really target what they like, might as well utilize it. Totally. And it's pretty calming too. Oh, very much so. But it can also bring up your heart rate. I mean, yeah. you can use it in the opposite way as well. Definitely. <laughs> do they 
do does it all is it also a good way to look at how kids are receptive to it too like i feel like you could test receptive language with music like head shoulders or stuff like that that's a really good point i've never actually looked at it in that sense but you're you're right if you have all of the farm animals out and you're singing old mcdonald had a farm e-i-e-i-o and mm-hmm. then you ask for the horse that's a great way for them to scan the different items and choose from a field of four or five yeah. to try to figure out if they can identify that animal and on top of that you can also utilize it for those environmental sounds so those animal sounds and some letter awareness as well phonemic awareness so mm-hmm. i think you can utilize music in every part of therapy and every part of life Let's be real. Every part of life. <laughs> I'm going to have you sing a Taylor Swift song at the end. No, no. <laughs> My, I was born in the wrong century. I'm more of a jazz, big band kind of music person. Do you play instruments too? I play a little bit of piano, primarily singing. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So let's talk about how you chose speech as a career. Okay. So We have to go back a little bit. So I mentioned I was the oldest of eight kids, but two of my siblings actually have special needs. I have a sister with autism who's 29 and a brother with Down syndrome who's 17. So growing up and growing up in so many different places, I had the opportunity to witness so many different types of therapists and therapies, whether it was in-house, in clinic, in the schools. And I was always drawn to the speech pathologists. I felt like it was just fun. Mm -hmm. And To make therapy fun and not work just felt like such an incredible skill to have. They were playing games, they were laughing, they were having fun, and it was just really a joy to watch. So when I went to grad, or I'm sorry, not grad school, when I went to undergrad, it was highly recommended that I go in undecided. And so I went in undecided, but I've always had that speech inkling in the back of my mind. So I looked at programs around New York that had speech, and that's how I chose the school that I went to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with the background of your family and your two siblings, did they integrate you into therapy? And do you use elements of your history as a sibling and bring other siblings into play with kids that you work with? Most definitely. If the siblings are available, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're double booked. I love to bring the families in and the siblings in as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of therapy too is parental education. So being able to bring that personal experience also helps. But we also have to remember too, speech pathology continues to evolve. So what worked in the past for my siblings might not work now or be the right evidence-based practice now to utilize. Mm -hmm. So First of all, thank you so much for sharing. I should have said that before. Oh, that's about okay. Your siblings. No worries. Um, so I feel like this is really interesting because I f- a lot of people who come into speech have some sort of experience before mm-hmm. in some capacity, whether it's their own, whether it's a sibling, because it is pretty hard to find this field mm-hmm. if you don't have that. Did you always think you would work with kids? I... I always thought I would work with kids, um, but I have had some experiences with adults that I really enjoyed as well. Mm -hmm. When I was in grad school, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but when I was in grad school, one of my internships was at a TBI unit at a rehab center. Wow. And I was dreading the day I walked into that building because I did not think I was going to be a good fit. I was worried about what I was going to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had had everything from anoxic injuries, motorcycle accidents, And I just hadn't really been prepared for that. I didn't have a lot of experience. And I am so grateful for the experiences that I had there. I got to learn so much about vents and trachs that I 
really had no knowledge about and hadn't really had the opportunity to learn about in grad school at that point. But I also got to meet so many different therapists and learn how to collaborate with others. (laughs) So it wasn't always just the speech therapist. There was the occupational therapist, the respiratory therapist, the physical therapist. So really learning those foundational skills of collaboration, I felt really important there. It also reaffirmed that maybe working in an adult setting wasn't quite for me. But I felt really proud of myself that I did it and that I felt like I did it well. That's really cool. I love hearing stories of people who go a little bit out of their comfort zone Mm -hmm. because it's so rare that you hate it. And it's very unlikely that you won't learn something that's generalizable (laughs) to later on. Exactly. I mean, I think you have to go into every experience and find one thing that you've learned from it. And that'll make you a better human and a better therapist. For sure. So let's go backwards a little bit in time. Mm -hmm. For undergrad, you did psychology and human development. I want to know how I know now how you got into speech, Mm -hmm. but how does that influence the way that you approach clients in the clinic room? Mm -hmm. So going back a little bit, so I did choose my undergraduate program because they had a speech program. Unfortunately, my first semester, and because I did go in undeclared, they cut funding to the program that year. So when I went to declare my major, they said I couldn't do it anymore. And at that point, I had already established such great friendships with my college roommates, with my professors. I loved the culture of Geneseo. It's a small school in upstate farmland, New York. And it was just, it was not going to be possible for me to leave at that point. I didn't feel like it was going to be a good choice. So I started looking at other majors that I felt like could help lend themselves to the field of speech pathology. So when looking at those, I was looking at psychology primarily because of their child development programs there. And then I was also able to apply that to a minor as well. And I think it's just so important to have those foundational skills. Like, yes, it probably would have been very helpful to have those introductory classes to articulation and phonological disorders, speech, or I'm sorry, expressive and receptive language disorders, genetic diagnoses. But at the same time, I also learned more about counseling and just interacting with others as a human. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was an incredibly important skill to have. And it lent to me being able to go into the therapy room and not just provide therapy, but also be there as another human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one, having that psychology background is really important, not necessarily because you get trauma-informed care and you don't learn that. It's, mm-hmm. you know, not an undergrad. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but, but you do learn about the realities of people's background and experiences mm-hmm. that influence where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I think you d- cannot go wrong with having a psychology background. <laughs> Definitely not. And I think it really helped just in my own studies too. Like what are study strategies that I can utilize mm-hmm. that'll help me learn this material better and actually digest the material as opposed to just ingest it and regurgitate it back immediately mm-hmm. and forget it for the rest of my life. So I felt like it was beneficial not to myself as an individual, but also to my future clients. For sure. I mm-hmm. really see that. So I really am excited to dig a little bit into your post-baccalaureate because you Mm -hmm. did that then. I did. What was that like? And did you do it in the school that you continued in? So I did my post-bac through SUNY New Paltz, which is another state school in New York in the Hudson Valley. And it was an online program. So at that point, after I graduated from undergrad, I moved out here to Colorado. So I was able to do that post-baccalaureate program through New Paltz. And I believe I took two or three classes at a time. And we didn't have any direct client contact. 
we utilized an online system for our observation hours. And I was a little defeated by that (laughs) because I wanted that in-person experience that I didn't have the chance to have an undergraduate um, school just because we didn't have a clinic that I could go to. So, but I remember learning all the information and kept trying to tell myself, this is what I need to know. This is the foundational information to have. And then when I get to grad school, I'll be able to actually put it into practice and apply the knowledge. Mm -hmm. I did my post-baccalaureate also online. Mm -hmm. And I also was sad that I didn't have (laughs) in-person facing hours. They said you could go do it and you can Mm -hmm. find them on your own. But then when I would talk to some people, they would say, well, we don't know that they're the best, that they're following best practice. Mm -hmm. So you can do that and you can get those observations approved, but you just don't know who's following best practice. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, that's that has the same thing for a CF and that's the same thing it for is. an internship. <laughs> that's so true. I was very lucky because at the time I was working as a paraprofessional in an SSN room in Colorado Springs and the speech language pathologist there, there were two, they kind of took me under their wings. They knew I was doing this program. And so anytime they went in and they did testing, evaluation, screenings, they would always kind of show me the results Aww. and be like, what do you think? That's awesome. And so I was able to kind of apply my knowledge there, but also learn in that real-time environment as well. Um, and I'm so grateful to them for giving back to that little para who was going <laughs> through the post-baccalaureate program, hoping to get into grad school. <laughs> yeah. Why did you come out to Colorado? So I mentioned before that my parents were both in the Army. So Mm -hmm. when they retired, they were looking for great programs around the U.S. that would have the hospital-based therapies that they needed for my siblings as well as great schools. And Colorado Springs just always popped up as one of those places. That's great. So when they moved out here, I was like, well, I have at least a year and a half before school starts, grad school. I might as well give it a try. So I came out here and after grad school, I came back too. And I haven't left since. Did you do your graduate school in New York? In New York. Mm -hmm. So I moved back to New York for that. Great. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So was it really, and this is so off topic, but it's okay. okay. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) When you came out here, did it feel really different? And did Colorado have, I guess they would have the populations you wanted to work with either Mm -hmm. way. Of course. And that's the thing about speech language pathology is you can find clients everywhere. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. There is somebody who needs your help. So I was really happy that I was able to find places of work that I felt would fit my needs and what I wanted in a place that I wanted to work at. Yeah. So you get into grad school. Mm -hmm. You're like, I'm finally here. I'm ready to start meeting with clients. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about grad school wishing you had known when you first walked in? Well, before we get to that, I'd also yeah. like to mention I was waitlisted. Oh, I, please, let's talk about it. I um I didn't actually outright get into a graduate program right away. I mean, I was like 999 other students. I had a fairly good GPA. I had that experience and I looked the same on paper I think as everybody else. So, being waitlisted, I was worried. I was worried I wasn't going to be able to make it in. I'd have to apply again, spend all that graduate application money again. So to be able, when I got the call, I got the call maybe two months before school started. I remembered I was at my parents' house and I, 
I got this random phone call from New York and I picked it up not knowing what it was. I think I was taking a nap <laughs> and it was a professor from the school. She's like, I just wanted to let you know we loved your interview and we want to offer you an acceptance. I got chills. I cried, Christy. I was so excited. I remember going into the living room where my parents were and they were just so excited for me. Um because I was worried it wasn't going to happen that year. Mm -hmm. And that was disappointing to even think about. But knowing that I was waitlisted, I didn't tell anybody in my cohort. (laughs) Of course. It's so scary. It was. so scary Mm because that part of the journey is there's only Mm self-doubt. And it's so, so competitive. Mm -hmm. You hit the nail on the head. And that's the other thing too. And that kind of lends to your question that you asked you about going into grad school is Because I wasn't in an undergraduate speech program, I didn't realize how competitive it was. And when I got there, that was one of the reasons I didn't tell people in my cohort was because these were all bright, intelligent people. And I'm sure I was just as bright and intelligent as them, but I felt inferior. Mm -hmm. I felt inferior because I didn't get in outright. But the funny thing was I was talking to one of my closest grad school friends just a couple months ago, and she let me know she had been waitlisted too. (laughs) So I was like, oh. I bet a lot of us were like looking yeah. back hindsight. It really it hurt hard when I yeah. got that letter saying that I had been waitlisted because I had known other people in my postback program who had been offered an interview two or three months before me, but then they never heard anything back. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was kind of this waiting game. Like, are they just waiting to offer them an acceptance? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really happy when I got the interview and I immediately flew out to New York so I could do it in person instead of online. Yeah. And I think that just really showed them my drive. And like I said before, and to future um, SLPs out there who are applying to grad schools, it's, I don't think it's because I was any less. I think it's because honestly, I was the same. (laughs) We all had very similar GPAs. We all went to very competitive undergraduate schools. Mm -hmm. Um, We all had some experience to some extent with speech language pathology. And I can't even imagine what an admissions program is looking at. I mean, they're looking at client, I'm sorry, applicant A and applicant B, and they're exactly the same. Do you flip a coin? Well, I don't know. It's almost like what I wish one was at the top of the pile is what I like to think. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, maybe that's why I was always like submit as early as possible. But Mm -hmm. then I started to fear if I submitted as early as possible, maybe I'm actually at the bottom because they're just stacking them on top. Those irrational fears always get to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so many people are waitlisted and mm-hmm. everyone's afraid to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate you talking about it here. Well, and of course, and I'd also like to point out too, even though I was waitlisted, I have an incredible career right now that I'm so grateful for. I get to work with some of the best SLPs in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I have some of the greatest graduate school SLP friends that I still talk to all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on a board of directors for a state association yeah. too. So it. Just because you might get waitlisted or just because you might get denied that first time doesn't mean that you're any less of an SLP than the mm-hmm. person who might have gotten accepted outright to every single school they applied to. Yeah. Those people that get 12 out of 12 applications accepted, I'm so impressed by them. Amazing. But I want to know what they did. <laughs> Honestly, it's such a crazy game because your safety school could be the one that waitlists you mm-hmm. versus the one that you thought was the hardest one accepts mm-hmm. you. There's no like truthfully there's no logic behind it i really mm-hmm. don't think i mean that's just me i'm, I'm not on, <laughs> i'm not on a committee that accepts people mm-hmm. or declines admissions committee it's not me but another thing i think about all the time and i i've said this before on the podcast and i say this to people who are applying all the time being waitlisted is not that they didn't 
want you at the school. Mm -hmm. They thought you were a good fit. They still think you have everything you need. They believe in you and they Mm -hmm. think you will be successful. They just have a quota. And there's only such a, there's such a small amount of Mm -hmm. space and you're, you are capable. They see it. They like that. They just don't have 700 spots. No. And I think that it's, again, it goes back to the competitive nature. These graduate programs are so competitive. I mean, mine only had 15 to 20 people in it. And so a very small cohort. Um, Now that we've completely gone off the rails, (laughs) going back to your question, though, back to that competitiveness in graduate school, I wish I had just taken a breath. Um, I felt like just the nature of the program, you had to get A's. You had to get straight A's, not an A minus, an A. Mm-hmm. Um, you always had to be studied. You had to know every single detail. And I wish I had just taken a step back and done something for myself, mm-hmm. whether it was every day for an hour going out and exploring the town. I went to school in New Paltz, which has this incredible artsy town. And I did not explore it as much as I should have. Um, and finding a club or maybe a local production of a show that you could go and join too, mm-hmm. just to have something other than grad school. And I'm not saying you shouldn't study, <laughs> not at of all, <laughs> but I'm saying a B is okay. And when you go to apply for jobs, nobody's going to ask what your grades were in grad school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just learning to enjoy the people in your cohort too. Um, we always had a Friendsgiving in my Aww. school. So we would get together and we'd all cook aside and we'd all gather at whoever's apartment had the biggest space. And those were some of my happiest memories. Yeah, I one completely agree. That is a very common thread of people looking back and being like, had I only gone to that party, mm-hmm. if only I had gone to see a movie, mm-hmm. if only I had watched TV mm-hmm. for like five minutes instead of drowning myself in my in my days of school and all of the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I sit on the couch like if I'm alone, I'll sit on the couch and I'll look up and it's 11 p.m. and I've been doing school since, since 7 a.m. But then when mm-hmm. my roommate is here, she she can ground me and we can be like, you know, let's just watch TV. So maybe I'll stop working on school stuff by six. I love that. And it's it's definitely a give and take. And I think accepting yourself and being like, it's okay that at 4 p.m. I'm stopping working on this. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Or even just like you said, taking a break too, maybe from four to six, you're a culinary expert and you're making the most <laughs> delicious meal in the world. That's a great outlet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do it. Yeah. Make that brownie batter. Like make your dessert. Do it. Yeah. Take the time for yourself. Some people have come on here and said like yoga has been mm-hmm. great. Or drawing has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. Just finding that passion project. Mm-hmm. Even just going for a walk. Mm-hmm. I've really challenged myself every single day to go for a walk and try to look for something new. I mean, I'll walk the same exact path, but I'll notice something new every single time. And just really being aware of my surroundings and being in the moment, I think is incredibly important too. So is that something you do for yourself now? Is there anything else you do to kind of give yourself that space and breath? Um, Like I mentioned before, I come from a very musical family. So oftentimes if you see me somewhere, I'm probably singing to myself. (laughs) Um, I think in Grey's Anatomy, it's Meredith and Christina and they always have a dance party. I'm the one like belting and dancing (laughs) in my living room. I love a Grey's Anatomy (laughs) reference. It's great. Perfect. (laughs) But you just have to find those little moments to find some joy. And I think it's really important to find that joy every day too. Yeah. So let's jump into the work that you're doing now. Mm -hmm. I want to get into your Kasha career separate, but let's talk a little bit about your current career. 
Of course. So how did you get into the setting you're in? You work with kids now mm-hmm. and are you in your own private practice or? No, I work for okay. um, Stryka Pediatric Therapies in That's Colorado right. Springs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of grad school, I graduated, I had applied to the schools. The schools to me were always the ideal. You get summers off, you get guaranteed weekends, you get all of these holidays. So I went to the schools and it was a shock to the system, to say the least. I was a CF in three different schools. I had a middle school, a high school, and a transitions program. I had an incredibly high caseload. There was an SSN program in each of those schools. (laughs) So on top of all of their IEPs and then also taking in new intakes um, in between graduating from elementary to middle, middle to high and high school to transition, there's also transition meetings too. (laughs) So that first year was not my favorite time. (laughs) Um, It was quite a lot. And the other thing about schools in Colorado too, is that they don't necessarily pay as well. And maybe it was just my district. Every district has a different pay scale. So I was making less than 40 grand a year before taxes, which was just so difficult to be able to support yourself to do that. Um, And I loved my clientele. I loved my coworkers. I had a great support system, but it, it just wasn't feasible. You just feasibly can't live off of that. And so before I went into my second year, the other CF and I got together and we kind of went on our first advocacy venture together. And we looked at all of the different districts surrounding us and we found their pay scales, their incentives for SLPs, any kind of bonus structure they had. And we presented it to HR and said, hey, look, This is what other SLPs, the district over 10 minutes away are making. We need some help. Like we need to know how we can try to reach this level. And he kind of poo-pooed us. (laughs) Oh no. So then we got the special ed director involved. And after he went back and he talked to, I'm assuming the board and HR, he was able to come back with an extra $5,000 bonus for all of the special service providers. So that was really helpful. I stayed a second year. And then my CF supervisor actually gave me a call. She had gone to the private practice before I did. And she was like, hey, Andrea, we're looking to hire somebody. And I think you would be an amazing fit. (laughs) And so I went and interviewed and I just knew it was the kind of place I wanted to be in. So clearly it didn't feel good to not be being compensated for your work Mm -hmm. and also the amount of work that you were doing and the variety of settings they were putting you in, Mm -hmm. the different populations. What was it like to advocate at that early in your career for yourself? Mm-hmm. And what gave you that push? Oh, it was so nerve wracking. <laughs> I remember sitting there and just shaking. Yeah. Um, and the other CF too. I mean, we were just fresh out of grad school. We were in our 20s. Um, and we obviously didn't want to step on any toes. And the other thing too, is we both loved what we did. We both loved our clients. We both loved our coworkers. We loved the schools we were in. We just felt like we should be compensated for what we're doing. And we were on the same exact pay scale as every other employee at that school, every other teacher and therapist. And also our graduate programs are a little bit more, um, in depth. I mean, we had, I had over 60 credits, whereas for the master's program for the teachers, I think it was in the thirties. So I had double the amount of education. I also wasn't able to start practicing right away. You have to have your master's before you can practice. Whereas with teachers, you have five years to get your master's from what I understand. So we definitely just wanted to be compensated for the work we're doing, but also cost of living was very high. So it was just, 
it had to happen. Mm-hmm. We couldn't afford to live by ourselves and be able to feed ourselves as well. Um, so it was very, very nerve wracking, incredibly so. Um, and I mean, I remember leaving that meeting and like crying, just crying because all of those emotions were coming out and those anxieties, but it all worked out in the end. Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't quite work out for you, try again. And we just tried to be very realistic. We tried not to bring emotions into it. And we just black and white just showed them the discrepancy because just because I was getting paid so low at my school district doesn't mean the district next door, they weren't making 20 grand more. So it was feasible for you to work in the schools and have a livable wage as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I'm really impressed with not only your ability to advocate, but pushing yourself to do something like that, especially Mm -hmm. after being pushed down Mm -hmm. in response at first Mm -hmm. and how you went around, not around, but you went to the next step to keep pushing a little bit Mm -hmm. harder to see where it went. Well, and it was something I really believed in, too, because we wanted parity. We wanted parity with our other SLPs working at other schools in the area. Like I said, 10 miles away, not Mm -hmm. even that far. Um, And we were doing a lot. I I had 80 kids on my caseload (laughs) at three different schools. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And when you think about that's 80 IEP meetings a year and so many transition meetings and progress notes and things like that, too, as a first year. Wow. Um, it was just a lot to learn. Yeah, it was definitely I, I, baptism by fire, I'd say. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Mm-hmm. That sounds insane. And I, I don't want to discourage anybody from going to the schools. I think the schools can be an amazing place to go be a speech pathologist, but also advocate for yourself, advocate for a great caseload, mm-hmm. advocate for good pay, um, advocate for that room. I've heard some horror stories about people getting the broom closet for speech therapy. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky that I had two pretty darn good rooms. <laughs> so, And also advocating for your clients. Like if you're mm-hmm. not being put into a good situation and you're giving a really big caseload, like what does that set you up for with your clients and, mm-hmm. and being able to actually help them? Exactly. A lot of this environmental factors affects, mm-hmm. <laughs> affects how you present in front of your kiddos. Exactly. Um, and so much of what we do really does affect our kiddos, right? Mm-hmm. If we have a slightly different demeanor one day, they're probably going to be wondering what's going on with Missy Andrea today. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, they can sense it. Oh, always. Even before you can sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, hmm. Why am I, I'm sensing this. <laughs> like, Don't know what, what it is. can I push today? Oh, yeah. They're like, <laughs> She looks mad, so maybe not today, but tomorrow, <laughs> oh, she's going to see. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I just, I think it's so incredibly important to advocate for yourself, even if it's hard, but also when you're advocating, do it appropriately. I mean, go in with the facts, be black and white in what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, explain how this can impact you and impact your clients. And I think that's so important. Yeah. So, Okay. You finish up at the school, not finish up, Uh you applied to a private practice and you loved the setting. Tell Mm -hmm. us more about that. So I work in an old Victorian home right now. Um, There's quite a few SLPs there and OT as well. Um, It's really fun because the kids come and I mean, just like any work setting, if you work at the schools, they think you live at the schools, but they really think (laughs) I live at that house. (laughs) Like going to see Missy Andrea's house. Um, And I love 
working there because I have so many coworkers who are just so incredibly competent in what they do. And everybody has their niche, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have one who loves AAC, one who loves kiddos with some behaviors, another who loves fluency, motor speech, etc. So if I don't feel super competent in something, I feel so comfortable going to one of them to ask, what do you think I should do here? Or how would you do this differently? Mm -hmm. I feel like that just helps me grow in my clinical skills as well. So what's your niche? I really love motor speech disorders. I love articulation and phonological delays. Um, But I also like to keep it fresh. I mean, I love the random fluency case that comes or learning more about AAC because it's constantly evolving. Um, Every once in a while, I will take an adult client with aphasia, um, but very, very specific ones that I know that I can feel competent into. Um, especially if they've been trying to get therapy and they just can't get in anywhere. Yeah. Um, so I like to stay on my toes and I like to stay fresh Yeah. and I love to learn. I am a nerd. (laughs) I'm the one who goes to a conference with every single presentation printed out with my highlighters and my (laughs) pens and I'm writing notes in the margin and I have that huge honking binder. Um, like I just, I love to learn more about everything. (laughs) I can't wait to go. Once I'm actually out in the field uh-huh. to a conference and be like that, just be like, <laughs> so like my first ASHA conference, mm-hmm. I was doing my post-baccalaureate. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what anyone was talking about. Mm-hmm. I was like, huh? A trach? <laughs> the heck do you mean a trach? Mm-hmm. We do that? <laughs> You're like, you have to do what? There's You're secretions sticking- coming out? <laughs> You're sticking what in their nose? <laughs> exactly. No, I I love to learn and mm-hmm. I love to bring that back to the clinical treatment room as well. And I love to try different things. I mean, every child, since I work with primarily pediatrics, every client is different. And what works with one kid probably will not work with another kid. Mm -hmm. So you have to try to figure out what, how can I manipulate what I learned and feed it to this child so that they understand and they can digest that information and then be able to generalize that skill as well. Yeah. I read on your website, Mm -hmm. or I think it was actually the Kasha website, Mm -hmm. that you were DTTC certified Mm -hmm. and prompt certified. One, can you tell us what those are Uh and what you would use them for? Of course. So I mentioned that I really enjoy motor speech disorders. So, for example, a child with apraxia, they might benefit from DTTC or prompt because they're different types of um, cueing and prompting hierarchies. So starting out with those very strict and um, many, many different types of prompts and cueing systems, and then kind of pulling back to help them generalize those skills. So I actually did DTTC because I was very much influenced (laughs) um, on Instagram. We have some amazing Colorado SLPs on Instagram. And I can't remember if it was Amy Graham or or Jenny Bjorn, I'm sorry. And they were mentioning DTTC, and it's a free training. So for six hours, you sit there and you get to watch the amazing Edith Strand teach you about a cueing hierarchy and the principles of motor speech and how you can apply it to a motor speech disorder. And at the end, you take your quiz and you have that initial certification per se. Um, So I highly recommend everybody does it. And it's, it's not necessarily groundbreaking information, but it really just reaffirms what you can do to really help the child, truly help the child with their speech. 
Um, and then prompt, we had had so many parents reaching out to our clinic asking if there was a prompt certified therapist in the area. And um, so I've done my initial and bridging certification. I'm not fully certified yet. It's a very long process. It's not something you can just do overnight. Okay. Um, and utilizing those. And those are more kinesthetic tactile cues that you can use on a child. And there's different types of prompts as well, depending on the situation. And I love that I have both to utilize because some kids don't like to be touched. <laughs> Fair. So, and I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's times that I don't want to be touched either. So kind of pulling from both sets of trainings, I think has been really beneficial for those kiddos. And it's really fun too, to see those kids start self-cueing themselves and utilizing those strategies themselves. Oh yeah. The future SLPs of the world right there. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling you before we came online about one of my kids who mm -hmm. I just used this little cue and now he copies it when mm -hmm. he's expecting it. And it is just the cutest thing. Mm -hmm. It's I so much it. fun to watch them. Um, and the fact that they can cue themselves and start to generalize those skills is also really exciting to see too because mm -hmm. they're not dependent upon you or dependent upon the prompt anymore. They're really starting to um, inhibit, not inhibit, I'm sorry, the wrong word. They're really starting to take in and use those skills functionally. So even if you're, can you use elements of DTTC and prompt even if you're not certified in them? Um, you definitely could. I think like I said, it's queuing systems, right? Yep. So everybody kind of has their own queuing system. I think the most important thing is that you're consistent. Mm -hmm. You're consistent with your cues and you're not constantly changing it up because it's yet another thing that child or client is going to have to learn. Um, but I mean, since DTTT is free, go on the website, sign up for it, yeah. give it a try. And it's just, like I said, I'm a nerd. I love to learn. <laughs> so it was just really great to reaffirm um, that what I was doing was correct, but also learned some new skills in there as well. Definitely. That's mm -hmm. really cool. So you said sometimes you take on like an aphasia client mm -hmm. sporadically. You're the private practice that you work for. Mm -hmm. Do they see all types of clients or is it primarily kids Mm -hmm. And then you find people who need additional help. So it's primarily pediatrics. And we have moved towards more of a pediatric population now. Okay. Every once in a while, we'll just get that person that calls in and they have tried and exhausted everything. Um, and like I said, I'm, I would not say I'm an expert with adult language in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. um, but working in that TBI unit, I did find certain types of aphasia that I really enjoyed working with. And so every once in a while, I'll get one or two. I haven't had one in a really long time now, but it's a great way to refresh my skills and also learn some new skills to apply with them as well. Yeah. I want to ask one last question about mm -hmm. this. We talked offline also about when a kid or when a <laughs> client is done mm -hmm. and they're being discharged. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of the things that you look for when discharging a kid? Well, we want to make sure that they've mastered a skill. That is definitely the most important thing. Um, but not only have they mastered it, but that they have mastered and use it. Because oftentimes you'll see that a kid has mastered a skill in your session, and then they go home and they drop it. <laughs> it hasn't generalized, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that that skill has generalized. And I always like to see how proud those kiddos are that they've done it. 
um, when you get that EI client that comes in that came in with maybe one or two words, and now their vocabulary is exploding. They're mm-hmm. just so excited to come and tell you about something. That's when you know your job has your work here is done. Yeah. And it's always a little sad to say goodbye, but you also have to feel pride in what you've done as well. Yeah. We talk a lot about in school how sometimes a kid, when they're, let's say, six, mm-hmm. they've mastered a skill that's going to get them through maybe the rest of elementary, mm-hmm. but then information gets harder in middle school mm-hmm. and taking that in. Is that something that you disclose to parents? I guess it's, that's kind of scary to disclose them because then they're going to be hyper aware. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. what that would look like. I try to work on the here and now, like in the moment, what can I do to help them kind of meet where those gaps are mm-hmm. right now and reach those skills. Um, and then if something else comes up, we work on it. Yeah. I mean, that's how it is. You might master something um, like you might go to speech therapy for EI and then you're graduated, but then you get to middle school and there's some other difficulties going on. So they might come back and it's different skills. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of work on the here and now and what I can do to help the kid in the moment. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't sure yeah. what that looks like. Of course. <laughs> um, or like how much you say about mm, the potential. And I think it depends necessary. on each individual, right? I mean, mm-hmm. some you can kind of predict how this skill is going to affect the next level skill and the mm-hmm. next level skill. So you really hit home to the parents. Why is it so important that we're working on this foundational skill right now? How is that going to impact that more abstract idea because the abstracts are always so difficult. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, true. And really working like why it's so important that they do their home programming and practice at home as well. Yeah. Um, so the here and now, but also you take an individualistic approach as well. Of course. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for telling us about your journey through <laughs> your career in this capacity. Of course. I'm really excited to jump into the Kasha. Let's side jump of into things. the Kasha. Before we get super into it, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Kasha is and mm-hmm. the benefits of Kasha? Of course. So Kasha stands for the Colorado Speech Language and Hearing Association. Um the U.S. has many states that start with C, so it is not the Connecticut. It's not the California. It's not the Kentucky either, even though that's not a C and a K. It's still pronounced <laughs> the same. Um, and so what CASHA is, is we are a nonprofit organization, an association that represents speech-language pathologists, audiologists, SLPAs in Colorado. So what we do on the board of directors for CASHA is we identify some legislation that maybe we can work on. We also try to provide education for um, the therapists in Colorado, whether it's through webinars or through a conference. Um, And we really just want to try to be a place where SLPs, audiologists, SLPs have a voice. And um, we have a lobbyist that works with us who is amazing, Megan, and she really helps us identify those key issues that we can work on. What are some ways that you have impacted legislation in Colorado? Great question. So a lot of our legislation has had to do with Medicaid. Um, Medicaid is a state-funded insurance program. And one of the things is Medicaid's reimbursement rates, especially for speech-language pathologists, have been pretty low. Um, Speech is an untimed service for outpatient therapy. And so in the past three years, we've been able to get a little bit of a raise every single year, which is really important for that reimbursement because then practices can then use that money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, whether it's for a client retention, renovating their practices. I mean, they can utilize that income in any way. 
Um, another thing that we've done, too, is we really are trying to work on parity between speech and OT and PT as well when it comes to Medicaid. So one of the one of our ventures this year was to try to get 12 sessions before a PAR is triggered. And a PAR is a prior authorization request. So a kiddo can come into an outpatient practice. They can get an evaluation if they're on Medicaid. But for speech pathology, you have to wait until you get that PAR approved before services can start. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we're working on. We're still working on it. We were able to get it added to the budget in the long bill this year, which passed, which is really exciting. So now we're just waiting for a federal waiver before it can go into place. So we'll have about the same amount of sessions as OT and PT before that PAR is triggered, which is really exciting. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So how do these... How do these come to the table? Do you does your lobbyist seek out the legislations that you could be working on mm-hmm. to make effects, or is there something that's identified that's broken in the system? What are some of the ways that legislation's brought to you? Sometimes it's a little bit of both. A lot of these things that we were advocating for this year were things that came up last year, the previous year. So I kind of inherited them mm-hmm. on my presidential board this year. Just like next year, the president will kind of inherit some other things that have been identified as well. Um, but we've had consistency with our lobbyist. Megan's been with us for many years. So she's that continuity and able to help us. She's also really great at identifying if speech is ever brought up in another bill, if it's ever mentioned or something like that. So she'll shoot us an email real quick and be like, hey, were you aware of this? Did you know about the impacts on telehealth? Or did you know that you were listed as an organization that said that you would represent this bill, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're kept abreast that way as well. That's really cool. So how, well, how did you get involved in Kasha first? (laughs) So when I came to the private practice, one of the first questions the owner asked me was if I was a member of Kasha. And I was like, Kasha what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I'm not. I mean, I was aware that there were state organizations, but it wasn't really hit home to us in my program in New York. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something that I thought I needed to seek out here as well. And she has had experience with Kasha for her entire career. Um, Her daughter was on the board of directors as well. And so she just really hit home the benefits of Kasha and why it's so important that you are a member of your state association, what your state association can do for you. So I was hooked. So I joined Kasha, (laughs) paid my dues. And for about two years, I just kind of took a periphery. I took some of their webinars. I did some of their courses at the conference, especially during COVID when it was online. Mm -hmm. Um, I was kind of aware on the sidelines of what they were doing, but it wasn't until three years ago now, um, somebody who was on the board of directors who worked at our sister clinic up in Castle Rock was like, hey, Andrea, there's these positions open. I think you should apply. And I was like, "Mm, sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I applied. So I ended up in the communication director elect position. So I was the one working on social media, the monthly newsletters that go out, just overall communication um, with membership and things like that, as well as some website maintenance. And the way it works on Kasha is you start in the elect position and then you move up to the VP position. So then the next year I was the communication director. So I took more of that role. So you have that continuity there as well. And you have that mentorship and you can teach the person who's coming up the next year and the next year. But also <laughs> um, 
my communication director year was when we realized we needed a president elect. <laughs> and somebody said, hey, Andrea, I think you should look into this. Oh my I was gosh. like, I don't know. That seems like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I'm happy to say that I did it. It was definitely something that I thought very long and hard about to make sure that this is something I felt I could do effectively because I didn't want to disappoint people. Of course. Um, I think that's just something I innately have as I, I'm a people pleaser. I think a lot of us are. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that I felt confident in what I was doing as well. So like I mentioned before, you have the elect position and then you're in the main position. And then with the presidency, so after this year, you'll go into the past, immediate past president position, which is kind of like that mentorship type role there. So this year is my presidential year, and it's been quite an adventure. I think we mentioned before, the world of SLP is just so vast. Mm -hmm. There are so many different settings you can work in, diagnoses, different legislation affects different people. Yeah. And it's been very humbling. And I've learned a lot, not just about therapy, but about the background. And I think that's something that not you don't usually think about right mm -hmm. in grad school. You're just like, I'm going to be the best therapist I can be. And then you have to think about, oh, <laughs> you have to worry about insurance. You have to worry about reimbursement. You have to worry about legislation. You also have to look at your local community and see what's going on as well. So it's been really exciting to be able to learn about a lot of those things too. It's crazy. It all kind of just fell into your lap in a way. In a way. Yep. It was I didn't necessarily seek it out, but it found me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that feels kind of intimidating for these <laughs> things to just fly at you. And it's probably just because you're very kind, very open, very happy. You're great at like, just chatting and listening and being very <laughs> engaged. Um, but how do you – I guess I don't know exactly if this is something you deal with, but when people in different settings – that you haven't worked in or aren't as familiar with ask you questions about mm -hmm. things, especially with legislation, do you point them in the direction of someone who's on the board who's in that area? Like, how does mm -hmm. that work when something like that comes to the table? I think it's a little bit of both. I also try to learn the answer as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important if somebody's asking you that question, somebody else probably has the same question. Mm -hmm. So I try to find out the answer and I guide them to somebody else that can give them the answer too. Um, luckily, our board has members that work in a variety of settings with a variety of different populations. And they also have colleagues too. So we have a huge breadth of availability to us um, to find the answer to these questions as well. Um, but like I said, like I want to take ownership too in my response and I want to learn as well. It goes back to being that nerd with conferences. <laughs> I'm the same way about finding information now. And I learn something new almost every single day. Yeah. So how one students can be members of Kasha? Yes, of course. We definitely welcome it. So how I do know that, but just for the people who don't. <laughs> of course. <laughs> how do people get involved for the first time? And mm -hmm. what is the is there a minimum level of participation for being a Kasha member? What is that like? I mean, the minimum level would just be become a member. We are a nonprofit. So um, a lot of what we do is really based on, unfortunately, our membership dues. We don't make money to make money. We are a volunteer board. We don't get paid for what we do as well. Um, so you could become a member and know that just by becoming a member, you're also impacting our ability to pay a lobbyist <laughs> to be able to work on this legislation. Yeah. Um, it directly impacts. It directly impacts our ability to put on a conference. 
and be able to provide education for those therapists here in Colorado. So I guess the minimum would be become a member <laughs> and you're already taking a step and taking part in helping Colorado's therapists, SLPs and audiologists and SLPAs. Um, but students are also more than welcome to join one of our in-person events. We do webinars. We have the conference every year. And it's just great networking opportunities. These are your future employers, your mm -hmm. future bosses, colleagues, new friends that you might be making. Mm -hmm. You can learn from students at uh, the other uh, programs here in Colorado. We have three universities in Colorado, which is really awesome. Another way students can be involved is you can be one of our student liaisons from the schools. We have Callie from UNC, we have Josh from MSU, and from Boulder, we actually have three that share the reins. So we've got Julie, Sarah, and Colin. Mm -hmm. And it is just really awesome to see these students so involved in their state association. Because as I mentioned, I was not as a student. It wasn't hit home that you should be a part of your association when I was in grad school. And to see people this early in their career so incredibly passionate about what they're doing yeah. is really incredible. Yeah. Can you... Tell our listeners a little bit about why CASHA is different from ASHA. So ASHA, because they're a national organization, they look at things through a big lens. They have to look at how things impact all 50 states, whereas CASHA, Colorado, Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, looks at Colorado and the impacts in Colorado. Every state is a little bit different. They require different CEUs. They require different certifications. Um, to be able to be a therapist in different areas and different environments. Um, like when I was in New York, if I wanted to work in the schools in New York, I would have to get my TSSLD, which is an additional certification to be able to work in the schools. In Colorado, you don't need that. But Colorado does require that you have a different license to work in the schools. So your CDE license versus a DORA license where you'd work outside of the schools. So the state organization is really important at looking at how SLPs are impacted in the state and um, and how we can help that and help facilitate that as well. Yeah. So I think being it's kind of like when you're doing elections in the mm -hmm. government, you're like, focus at the state level, focus at the state level. People always focus on the federal, uh -huh. but let's really look deep into the the state level and the local level and the community level. Exactly. So that's where those differences mm -hmm. are really made. Well, and the other thing, you. of course, <laughs> of course, you want the differences that impact you. But Kasha also is able to communicate with some of the state organizations as well. So we can communicate with the Colorado Department of Ed, CDE. Mm -hmm. We can communicate with the Department of Regulatory Agencies, DORA. Um, and we always we can always get support from ASHA with that as well. But we're kind of at the forefront. Mm -hmm. So they come to us first and then we can contact our national organization if we need to. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. So I know that Kasha has a student mentorship program. Mm -hmm. They recently launched a CF support network. Mm -hmm. That's brand new, right? It is within the last year. So what does that look like for a CF who wants to be in the program? Who are they networking with? Is there, I guess there wouldn't be like a mentorship role, but what is that mm -hmm. networking do? Well, I think the CF should start with the mentorship program. When you um, become a member of CASHA, you have the option to join as a mentor, the professionals in the field. And right now we have over 100 professionals who are listed and they list all of their specialties on there as well. So you can kind of handpick like, where is this person located? What, are, what do they specialize in? What can I learn from them? And I will just point out that we have not had a single student bite at that list yet that we've heard of. 
So let's utilize that. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Um, I was on the list recently and we have not heard of a success story yet. There might be some out there, but it has not come back to the board. So then let's make sure that we drop the link Mm -hmm. in our show notes today to that, to where people can sign up for that, Mm -hmm. where people can look at and reach out to people. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does the communication look like to get back to making sure that you know it worked? Send us an email. Let us know. Send us a note on social media. So it could be happening. It could be happening. But at the same time, we haven't heard anything about it. I mean, we've had people who have been on that mentorship list for two or three years now. And they're like, nobody's ever contacted me. Wow. So, and maybe we just need to push it out a little bit more too, but it's a great resource. Mm -hmm. It's a really awesome resource. So let's utilize that and drop that link. Yes, please. Um, We will. Down below. (laughs) Check it out. Yes. Um, And then with the CF mentorship, we, what we're doing, or I'm sorry, the supportive network is we have a Facebook group that you can join and just kind of get to know other CFs in the area. I mean, there's things that come up in my CF. I wish I had more Mm -hmm. to talk to when I had such a high caseload and I wasn't sure if this was the norm or not. Like we want to make sure that we can facilitate that communication too. So there is the Facebook page. I believe it's the Colorado CF supportive network or group. And I will double check that. Let me. Well, we will link it. Yes, please. Either way, it'll be linked down below in the show notes for Mm -hmm. sure. Yes. Oh, it's the Colorado Mm -hmm. CF supportive network. Okay. On Facebook. And you can join that. And Kasha facilitates it. It's a private group. You don't have to worry about um, random people just joining. I mean, there's questions on there to verify that you are a CF in Colorado. Great. And we just want to be that supportive group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the more people know about these opportunities Mm -hmm. and these programs, they're going to want to do it. I know people love to help one another, especially at the beginning stages because Mm -hmm. everyone's nervous. Everyone's not sure. Is this what everybody's doing? Is this not right? So I love that you're creating this community and this opportunity for Mm -hmm. people to have outreach. Have you worked as a mentor with people? Have you? I have. So I've actually had the experience of supervising three graduate interns, which has been so much fun. Um, I've had a student from Pennsylvania, from Texas, and from Bo- or Massachusetts. I think it was in Boston. And it's just been so much fun. And I'm going to have my first Colorado grad student in the spring, which will be really exciting. I haven't had someone who's actually gone to school here in Colorado and coming for their that's um, awesome. graduate internship. Mm-hmm. And I just love it. I had an amazing supervisor in grad school for my last, um, my big internship, my five day a week full-time internship. And she just hit it home that she wanted to be there as a mentor and that she was proud that somebody took the steps to become an SLP. And she just wanted to give back. And she said, when you become eligible to supervise, you give back. Mm-hmm. And it, it was not a request. It was a demand. <laughs> but I'm so grateful that she did. I mean, she was incredible. And just to watch someone who was so passionate about her job, but also enjoy kind of honing my skills as mm-hmm. well, was so incredible. And it was really beneficial. I learned so much from her as well. So I definitely want to give back. I love having students. What are some of the things or pieces of wisdom? I guess we'll steal just one. Just one. Just one, because you got, you got to keep it interesting of for the course. people that are coming back. What is one piece of wisdom that you like to part, especially on a new clinician? You are smarter than you think. 100%. But also, even though you are smarter than you think, you will constantly learn. Mm -hmm. Um, You will not know everything when you graduate, and that's okay. That is more than okay. Speech pathology and the field that we're in continuously evolves. 
And so we are constantly looking at the most recent evidence-based practice. We are constantly modifying our treatment so that it's the best for the clients that we serve. And I think it's just really important to be open that we will continue to learn. That's great. People need to keep hearing that Mm -hmm. because it's intimidating. It's incredibly intimidating. And you want to be like, you want to get out of grad school and be the best clinician that you can be. I think you'd become stagnant if you didn't keep learning. Yeah. There's so many different roles and responsibilities we have, but so many different treatment approaches as well. Yeah. You've mentioned a few times Kasha Conference. Yes. A couple questions on that. One, it's happening in September, correct? It is happening September, September 29th and 30th at the Arvada Performing Arts Center in Arvada, Colorado. I was calling it Arvada. It is not Arvada. It is Arvada. And we are, our theme this year is reaching new heights, the power of you. So you can really focus on the power that you can have and the impacts that you can have as a clinician on your clients. I really like that. How do you select the theme? It's a process. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Usually what happens is everybody throws their ideas out there. The education committee, who is amazing, also kind of hones it down a little bit and picks like their top five favorite and then we put it to a vote. And oftentimes what we've done these past two years, we've had two different ideas and we've combined them. Um, A colon is a beautiful thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's called compromise, baby. Yes, I love it. (laughs) And um, it's unanimous. Uh, I think it was unanimously voted. I'll have to double check on that. Um, But we all have to vote on it, majority rules. And we just try to continue that theme throughout the entire conference as well. I love that. What are some of the things that people can experience at a conference for those who haven't Mm -hmm. been before? Of course. So there's three different tracks that you can follow throughout the conference. There's the education pediatric geared track, the medical adult geared track, and then we have the multi-interest. So this year, we're really excited because in our pediatric track, we have Amy Graham coming to present for two different sessions. She's going to be speaking on speech sound disorders. And then in our medical adult track, we have John Ashford coming in. He's going to be talking about fees and dysphagia. So we're really excited that we have those title um, presenters coming, but we also have some other amazing local Colorado presenters coming in too, Mm -hmm. who, and like I mentioned before, Colorado is just chock full of such incredible speech language pathologists, some of whom you can find on social media, some of whom you can find just through Googling and their specialties. It's just really incredible. That's amazing. There's presentations. Mm -hmm. People get to listen to other people talk about really incredible and really cool new and upcoming things Mm -hmm. that are happening. What are some of the things I know that students can present posters? Yes. So this year we have a couple of different opportunities for students. The first one I want to mention is this year the Cash Foundation, the Colorado Speech Language and Hearing Foundation, is going to be sponsoring four student scholarships. So please keep an eye out on the website for that. And we'll drop that link down in Christy's bio as well. That way you guys can apply for those. We also have, as you mentioned, the poster presentations, and those applications are open now. So if students are doing any research, we want all of you to come. We want all of you to present. Um, Last year, we had such an incredible turnout, and it's really exciting because it's during our happy hour. Mm. So everybody's just relaxed, laid back, but they're also really interested in learning about your research. And usually, they're very impressed (laughs) because, like I said, a lot of us might not have done as much research in grad school. So we're just impressed by the caliber and quality of the students that we have here in Colorado. That's great. This year, we also are going to be introducing a new thing for students called the Knowledge Bowl. 
And this is going to be an opportunity for students from the three different universities in Colorado. So the University of Northern Colorado, Boulder, and Metro State University graduate students will come. And it's kind of like a trivia, an, a praxis trivia per se. Ooh, sounds scary. Um, it's not scary. <laughs> no, it's not meant to be intimidating. And it'll actually count for CEUs for those who come to listen to it. The entire Whoa. conference counts for CEUs. Um, but this will also be an opportunity too. So it's kind of like a way to practice for the praxis. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> but at the same time, it's friendly competitiveness. So those trivia questions. And honestly, we're going to be so impressed by the students who are doing this because I don't know that any of us <laughs> would be passing the praxis if we took it tomorrow. There's so many different things to learn. Oh, yeah. How... How do students from the schools get involved? Is it just whoever shows up? Mm -hmm. So it's whoever shows so up. So we'll be having um, a place where you can, up. I don't know if it'll be apply or just sign up online. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll get a whole bunch of different teams. There's also going to be lifelines too. So it's not just going to be your knowledge. You can utilize people in the audience. You can utilize CASHA board members as well. It's meant to be a fun, not intimidating experience. You just can't utilize Google. Um, no, although sometimes <laughs> Google is a little wrong. So I That's don't know. True. Maybe we should throw that in there as a wrench. Ooh, hmm, the thing Google is wrong sometimes. Uh huh. But no, it's meant to be a very fun experience. A lot of other state associations do this at their conference. So we're kind of taking that idea and running with it in our own Colorado kind of way. But it'll be a really good opportunity to just to get everybody together. I mean, other states do tailgates beforehand. Everybody wears their alma mater colors. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really exciting. So I would I, love to see the students there for that as well. I think that sounds so fun. Mm -hmm. And what a great way to get students involved and engaged. Like a little competition never hurt. No, no, definitely <laughs> not. But as I've been harping on not being super competitive, we want to do it in a fun nature. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely fun. And losers all get Oreos. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love, you know what? We're looking for a trophy. I right now am trying to convince everybody that we need like a golden larynx. That's what I'm thinking as a trophy. And it could go Ooh. from like school to school, something like that. We're still worksmithing it, but. You can very easily find like some spray paint. Oh, yes. I done. mean, we've got 3D printers. We oh, could yeah. buy one on Amazon. Ooh. I mean, Ooh. I think it would be amazing. You can even I do a mouth. Uh, yeah, just a straight up mouth. Yeah. I think that would be awesome. Maybe we have like different trophies for different places and those yeah. continue to travel. That's cool. You know? But the, one of the reasons we want to do this too is we also want to bring together graduate students from the three universities, give them the opportunity to network because those are your future colleagues. And chances are you're going to be working with one of them at one of your future places of employment. So I think it'll just be a fun way to network, not only with your future colleagues, but also again, with your future employers. Yeah. And friends. We just want to build that community. That's one thing Kasha is really trying to do is just build a community in Colorado. I really love everything that you guys are putting into this. It sounds super fun. The first annual <laughs> praxis practice competition there you that go. is really just about friendship. <laughs> yes. No, we want to facilitate those friendships. So keep an eye out on the website and social media for those as well. Amazing. And we will 100% link the Kasha social media also yes. in our show notes. Please, please. Is there anything else about the conference that you want to share with our listeners that they can think about? I think it's just going to be a lot of fun. Um, I mean, these past two years, we've been able to have other in-person conferences and we've been growing and growing. And every year, you just have the opportunity to learn something new, refresh your knowledge, get together with like-minded people and 
build that community. I think that's the most important thing we can do in the world is build a solid community. Absolutely. I love that that is the mission going into all of these conferences Mm -hmm. to just continue to network, continue to grow the community, continue to give people opportunities to meet new people, and also to think about new ways to approach what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you work with other people, and no matter what setting that they're in, there's something that they might mention mm-hmm. that really ignites a new passion or exactly. a new way to look at things. Or igniting a new collaboration. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's work with other people. We don't have to be singletons. We can work together mm-hmm. and really build those foundational skills and be stronger clinicians. 100%. 100%. So let's get into our wrap-up section, okay. unless there's anything else you want to mention. Um, I would just like to mention again, students, we would love to have you. You are the foundation of our professions. Without you, we would be a dying outbreak. <laughs> we would be going extinct. Um, and I know earlier you had asked, like, what are some other ways that students can be involved? And I just wanted to mention, too, every year we do a day at the Capitol. And we invite all of our students to join us at that day at the Capitol where we get to meet our legislators. We get to meet our House representatives. Sometimes we get to sit on the House floor and listen to a session, which is really cool. We provide breakfast. So everybody stops by. And who doesn't love a bagel and coffee in the morning before they have to sit in a huge long session? And it's just a really great way to see how CASHA works in the moment in person, but also for students to get involved. So we would love to have them there as well. When does that typically take place? Typically, it happens in February. So we had one this past February, and unfortunately, the snow thwarted our huge attendance, but we still had a strong, a small but mighty group there. Um, Unfortunately, about half the people had to cancel because the snow was so bad, but we still had a successful day, which was really awesome. So please look for information in February as well. Um, But also students reach out. We love working with our students. We love being mentors. We love just learning from you too. We learn so much. You're learning the freshest information that you can share with us as well. We're definitely going to help get those numbers up on that mentorship program. Connection, Um, connection, connection. There we go. Connections. I love it. (laughs) We always talk about connection over data. Let's Mm -hmm. do it, people. Let's do it. We can do it. We are a communicative group of people. There's no reason we can't work together. (laughs) That's that's right. So on our Mm wrap-up, one of our favorite questions is, what is your go-to movie book or TV series that you watch and or consume when you need a mood boost? <laughs> um, if I need a mood boost, I usually go between The Princess Bride, classic, can't go wrong with that one, mm-hmm. or uh, Pride and Prejudice, the Kiara Knightley version, also a solid choice. TV shows, it could be anything. I love a good drama, like mm-hmm. courtroom drama, but then I also love a good like Friends or um, The Office. I really started to enjoy a lot more. Schitt's Creek, all of those. Those are all really great mood boosts as well. I love how you went to a courtroom drama. (laughs) You're like, I'm going to get my courtroom appearance by working in legislation. No, I don't I don't think I would ever want to end up in a courtroom. So I like to watch it from afar. But sometimes it just takes you out of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um and a good courtroom drama or even just a legal drama. I've been rewatching Suits too. It just came out on Netflix. Um and so I've been rewatching that one as well. Anything. I'm or sometimes a game show. I love a good game show. Mm-hmm. I could watch Jeopardy every single night. 
and I would be the happiest person alive. I like those competitive TV shows. Mm-hmm. I might only know two answers, but that's okay because I knew two <laughs> answers and that's what matters most. <laughs> it's like you get one right and you're like, I am a genius. Yes, I am smarter than a fifth grader. Oh gosh, you that would be perfect. This. I can do this. <laughs> no, yes, I love a good game show too. Um, but I mean, in reading too, I love to consume information, both fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit of everything. I think an eclectic mix is always a good choice. That's great. Yes. I mm-hmm. love it. So where can our listeners first find you and mm-hmm. then find Kasha? Okay. So to find me, I am not going to lie. I have a horrible social media presence. <laughs> <laughs> but to find me, you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. I would more than welcome that at Andrea Glenn. Um, you can also find me on Facebook at Andrea Glenn. I will warn you, I do not post much at all. I think I changed my profile picture maybe every two years on Instagram. It's just Andrea Sarah, and you can just kind of see my life here in Colorado. It's not very speech geared at all. And then to find Kasha, there's so many different places you can find us. You can find us on Instagram at Kasha.co. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Facebook at the Colorado Speech Language Hearing Association. And then our website too, which is kashasoc.org. So kashasoc.org. And that's where you can find a lot of information about our really fun upcoming events. Great. Thank you so much. All of that is going to be linked in the show notes below. Super big thank you for coming on today, Andrea. This has been incredible. I am very excited at all these opportunities for students to get involved in Kasha, for students to learn more, and then also just your wonderful vulnerability today sharing with us and everything, honestly, that you brought to the table. This was really great. Thank you so much, Christy. It was such a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. And we will catch you all next week. Thank you all so much for listening to Speeching It Real. You can contact me anytime at speechingitreal at gmail.com. Come to me with any questions you want answered, people you'd like me to interview, or any suggestions. 